Welcome to Pipeline, Profiles in Philosophy and Education. I'm your host, Winston C. Thompson. Pipeline is a monthly short-form interview program focused on contemporary scholars. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, please visit pipeline.fm. Pipeline is made possible by the generous support of the Education Department of the University of New Hampshire. This episode, we're joined by Len Wax, Temple University. Len Wax, welcome to Pipeline. Thanks so much. Uh, Now, in order to get us started, maybe you could tell our listeners how you began doing work uh, in philosophy of education. Uh, Was it the case that you started in philosophy? Did you start in education? What was was that that, that entry like for you? Well, actually, I think my interest started when I was just in school. I was one of those kids for whom the whole school deal like made no sense whatsoever. Okay. I was constantly getting the bad end of the stick from teachers that they, they I see my very being, my very presence mm-hmm. seems just excite a kind of hostility okay. that I had no idea like where I was coming from. <laughs> oh no. Like, why are they so angry at me? And uh, and it was very real. It wasn't just like something going on in my head. Uh, I got excluded from honors classes and then one of my, like in biology, well, I'll go back one step earlier. I had a math teacher in seventh grade. Mm-hmm. I went from public school in New York City to the suburbs, okay. and I went from sixth to seventh grade. And in my first week or two, we had some math, some arithmetic problem. I didn't know how to solve it, mm-hmm. but I figured out a way to solve it, and I solved it. It was kind of clever. Sure. I got F. <laughs> I had that experience, like a definite experience. This is like a madding crazy-making experience. I hate it. So then I got to to, uh, biology. I'd gotten the highest grades in math and in science in ninth grade. I was excluded from the 10th grade honors classes. Okay. But halfway through the first marking period, I was given the exams that the honors students had been given. Hmm. And of course, none of the material had been covered. I got a round F. Okay. And my teachers, my bio teachers said, see, see, you're not so goddamn smart. Huh. Wow. I figured, what the, what is going on here? And I have never figured that out, actually. When I graduated from high school, my high school, even though I had the only, I was the only boy in the class, a couple of girls, and I was the only boy that won a New York State Regents scholarship. Okay. My school, the guidance department, and the teachers conspired to uh, have me rejected from every college I applied to. Uh, they uh, wrote some kind of blackball letter, and sure enough, every college I applied to, and some were kind of, you know, reach, and some were very modest. Mm. I was getting rejected by return mail. Wow. And then one day, of course, this upset my parents a lot. It didn't upset me that much, because I figured the whole thing doesn't make any sense. This doesn't make any more sense than the rest of it. Sure. So it's at least consistent. Uh, but one day I was talking to some friends in the um, cafeteria, and one of the teachers who I, whose class I had missed by going to summer school hmm. the summer before because my brother had said don't let that lady get her hands on you she's going to kill you right okay. right uh so she came up behind me she grabbed me by the back of the neck and said see <laughs> we've shown you we've shown you huh. i said what's what is this she said well aren't you having a bad experience this year hmm. we have shown you haven't we and i said huh and she said well are you going to college <laughs> So that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is philosophy. Mm. So 
when I was 16 years old, I was hanging out with a bunch of kids who I didn't necessarily always hang out. One was this very pretty girl named Lorraine Caminetti. Hmm. And everyone was talking about what they were going to do. I was going to go to college and study and that kind of thing. And she said, Leonard, what are you going to be? Hmm. I said, I'm going to be a philosopher. Okay. And she said, wow, what's that? I go, I'm not sure I know. <laughs> this was but, at 16. 16, yeah. That's right. But I knew like that people like Jean-Paul Sartre and hmm. Bertrand Russell pissed a lot of people off. Sure. So I figured it was a kind of natural for me. So that appealed to you. It appealed, well, by that point, I'd come to own it a bit. Okay, interesting. Right? Okay. So, okay. So uh, I took uh, three philosophy courses the first semester when I went to Wisconsin. I sure. declared myself a major. Took, I took uh, ethics. I took... Aesthetics. I took logic. Mm. I was like into it. Okay. And I just moved right. I was 18 years old. Okay. Okay. And uh, a college sophomore. Interesting. And I just kept absorbing whatever Wisconsin had to throw at me until I got my PhD in philosophy. Okay, but so, but so, but what I what I hear you to be saying is that the early uh, uh, experiences in educational institutions, right, in yes. schools, yes. Uh, you had that frustration, right, trying to make sense of what was going yeah, it on. Wasn't and, just frustration. Yeah. I was like pissed. Yeah. Okay. Anger. anger. You had anger. Anger right? every day. Yeah. And a certain kind of bafflement. Okay. Like I didn't feel myself to be like like trying sure. to cause any trouble, but sure. it just. So you, so, so, you were, so you were angry, you were baffled, uh, and then you went on to, to, uh, to university, and then you got this sort of uh, philosophical training that allowed you, in some ways, then to return to that anger or make sense of that well, bafflement? To, to I mean, actually how find, did you do find that? Way, yeah. part, part of it was finding ways to express it. I see. I'll take this, like, uh, I mean, when I started, I, and actually, I started reading about education I see. right away. I read Paul Goodman. Okay, sure. I, I read John Dewey, mm. uh, Democracy and Education in 1962. Okay. And I thought, I don't understand the word of this. That's okay. kind of, I was like, what the hell? I can't, you know. But I kept reading kind of radical educators and okay. that kind of stuff. And I thought, well, I'm this John Dewey guy. He has a kind of model, mm. right? He's... Uh, kind of positions himself as a critic of this crazy thing. Sure. So, well, it's 100 years. Well, it wasn't 100 years then, but it's sure. like several generations later. That looked like a stance. Okay. Okay? So I always knew I was going to work in education, even though my teachers were saying, oh, you can't do that. And the philosophy of education doesn't exist sure. and stuff like that. Sure. So I, when I got to graduate school in philosophy, I was studying social philosophy and philosophy of the state. Mm. And I said, well, you know, education policy and blah, blah, blah. And I had to have a minor. It was a rule at Wisconsin that PhD hmm. philosophy students had to have a minor. So I minored in ed policy studies. Oh, interesting. Interesting. And I was at Wisconsin. And at the time, Merle Barman was historian of uh, education. Very, very good. And right. um, Don Arnstein was a philosopher of education. Okay. But one of our philosophy department teachers, who ended up being my major professor, William Hay, also taught philosophy of education. Okay. And okay. he didn't teach anything like standard philosophy of education, but he taught philosophy of education classes called philosophy of education. Right. And I remember one of them was the ideal of the educated person. Okay. okay. Things like that. I said, wow, this is, this is cool. Yeah. So I, I finished my work in ethics, social philosophy. I did all the stuff in epistemology, philosophy of science, and the like, but I was focused on that. And I wanted a job that would match them somehow. Mm. I got to uh, Purdue, which was my first philosophy job, right. and I was teaching uh, American philosophy, taught mm. seminar on experience and nature, my first 
okay. semester as sure. a grad teacher, sure. 1966. Okay. And I, I, I called up the folks in the ed school. Hmm. And I said, well, gee, I'd kind of like to, you know, chip in there. So is there any way we could arrange that? No. Huh. Door was closed. Door yeah. was closed. Sure. We don't want your kind. Sure, sure. Okay, don't, no need to apply. Sure. <laughs> and then um, I got a, a, a call from Stanford mm. in January 1968. Okay. And they had a joint appointment open in education and philosophy. Oh, wow. So I'd go and be in the philosophy department and in the education school half and half. Okay. And I had, I don't even know if I had ever been, I wasn't looking for a job. I don't know if I had seen it. Sure. But the guy on the phone said, well, you know, we've talked to everybody and everybody we talked to says, Len Wax is the only guy. He's the guy for the job. Okay. the guy for the job. Oh, wow. So they offered me a job basically sight unseen. Oh, wow. And so I went out there, and I became uh, Stanford's man sure. in philosophy. Now, that's interesting, because uh, to hear your, your, your telling of the story, right? I mean, it seemed that uh, uh, during your graduate uh, school days, there was a sort of an assembled uh, community, right? I mean, there wasn't really a community for philosophy of education, but you sort of uh, uh, built one through your relationships with various folks, uh, and then looking to build that community again when you were at Purdue, it wasn't really possible. But then the community, to some degree, sort of came to you. Well, it's not really true, because at that time, philosophy of education was in crisis. Sure. The older philosophy of education, I don't know if people are aware of what that is today, but there were two NSE, S.E. yearbooks sure. from, I think, 42 and 55. Mm. And they assembled all of this existentialism, sure. realism, phenomenalism, whatever. And it was garbage. Mm. You know, it really was. And sure. when I would look at this stuff, I thought, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Right. Okay. Right? So I had two things going. I wanted to be kind of professional philosopher, mm-hmm. something I've kind of shed in a way. Sure. And I wanted to be speaking about the things that were concerning me, which had nothing to do with whether it was existentialism or sure, realism. Sure, or sure, 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 sure. So uh, there had been a kind, of, a kind of battle against the old school education stuff. Mm. Part of this is reflected in actually my, my introduction to this first book. Oh, uh, where, Leaders in uh, Philosophy yeah, of Education. Leaders in Philosophy yeah. of Education, first series, where uh, uh, when, when you know, teachers had not always been university educated mm. here or in England. Right. But, but in the... Late 50s and early 60s, for the first time, education became a university-based subject. Sure. Teachers were being trained in universities, not in normal schools or teachers' colleges. Mm. And people recognized, many people recognized, that there's no knowledge base in education. Mm. So the Ford Foundation and a bunch of other people put big money into colleges of education hiring real philosophers, sociologists, historians, and the like. So I got in... In that wave. Okay. 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 Interesting. So that so we were kind of there to combat that other stuff. Sure. And to professionalize the field of philosophy of education. Sure. And I came in right on the beginning of that. Interesting. I mean, it sounds like a very interesting time to enter into the field and to really kind of, in some ways, uh, define the boundaries or limits or standards of some of the stuff that was going on. Now, since then, uh, what sorts of topics have you been working on? I mean, you mentioned uh, uh, the first in your in, uh, the first book in your series, uh, Leaders in Philosophy of Education, um, but you've got many other uh, books that you've uh, uh, that you've written over the years. What are some sort of abiding themes or issues that you might uh, speak to our listeners about? Sure. Well, the first theme 
theme that I took up, which I had already taken up in my doctoral dissertation, which was about philosophy of education, even mm. though it was in a philosophy department, was uh, be- behaviorism. Okay. But in particular, not so much behaviorism as a psychological notion, sure. but about specific learning objectives. Okay. And conceiving of education as some kind of instrument to create specific learning objectives. Sure. Now, I got in- involved in that because when I got to my minor mm. in educational policy studies, I went to talk to Merle Barman, okay. who was the chairman of the Ed Policy Studies Department at the time. Sure. And he said, well, what, you know, what kind of things interested in philosophy? I said, oh, idealism can't, whatever. Um, Enlightenment philosophies, cosmopolitanism, whatever. He said, oh, we don't do that here. He says, in, in education, we conceive of everything as a project in terms of learning objectives. Okay. And I said, I mean, right there, I said, I think that's probably the stupidest idea I ever heard. Sure. <laughs> I said, how can you think that way? It's like, it's a huge institution with incredibly large sure. numbers of important goals, and that's like one manifest sure. function. One piece of a larger, piece, a larger puzzle. Yeah. Right. And the piece which you kind of emphasize, they're going to distort the whole thing. Interesting. So that became the theme of my doctoral dissertation. Okay. Sort and then... And then so, so, so from that theme, uh, uh, do you see connections then to the other things that you've worked yes, on? Yes, I've worked ways, on that for yeah, 10 years. That's right. For 10 years, I worked on that whole problematic area, specific right. learning objectives. I tried to crush every formulation of the idea, sure. crush every argument that made, that made it look like a good thing, sure. you know, crush every concept of it, whatever. Hmm. And that's what got me to be a full professor, basically. I mean, that was my sure, one... doing that work. My yeah. one project, it was just an expression of all the hatred sure. that I had developed in oh, from Miss Platts when she didn't like my solution to the problem. Sure, but but so this is, this is really fascinating, right? So in some ways, it was this... Uh, this abiding sense of uh, what I called frustration, you call uh, 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 anger, right? That sort of motivated uh, uh, your projects well into your uh, academic career. Totally. Okay. Totally. Look, uh, Ray Bradbury says uh, a writer has to write about what he loves or what mm. he hates. Sure. It's probably better and more better for your mental health to write about what you love. Sure. <laughs> but I was writing about what I. But hate. the hate has been generative for you. The anger has been generative. Well, yeah. I mean, I had a lot of it. Sure. So, so then. I, yeah, so, so, think, so, so what else were you angry about then? Well, yeah. I wasn't too much angry about other things. Okay. But what I was, I, that, that kind of mm. defined a lot of my focus. Sure. But then I started thinking, well, what would things be like if they weren't like this? Okay. So oh, I spent a period of time trying to develop kind of classroom understandings and models mm. that had little to do with learning objectives. Sure. I also found in philosophy of education of the newer kind, which mm. I mean of the 60s, sure. Israel Scheffler, mm. uh, especially Paul Komazar, mm. who hired me away from Stanford to Temple in 1971. Okay. Uh, I found things that I could really uh, enjoy more. Uh, he thought of teaching as an intellectual act, as an mm. engagement of a person, un- explaining and justifying things to individuals right. sensitive to their anxieties and their needs for helps. Mm. But the idea was understanding, not learning. I see. So his model of teaching was, we got Theorem 21. Sure. We already have some axioms. Sure. We're going to watch this now. We're going to take these axioms, these other theorems. Sure. Do you get it? Interesting. Do you get it? And like, that was what teaching was about. I see. The whole enterprise was about learning in some very large sense. Mm. 
But individual teaching, like in classrooms, was right. not about learning at all. Right. It right. was about intellectual experiences. Right. Right. So that excited me, and excited me to work with him. And so I got somewhat involved in that. Uh, and was I, so, so those two things, think a little bit about teaching, but think about alternative organizational models mm -hmm. for schooling that don't involve these kind of means-to-ends right. things. And that led me to study organizational theory and organizational psychology and the like. And sure. I got a doctorate in educational psychology sure. and studying organizations. And I wrote a dissertation about these alternative, non-telic forms of learning. Okay. Uh, and, 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 and what year was that? Uh, these went... Uh, well, I got the actual degree in 84, okay. but I was thinking about that almost from the day I got quite to Quite some time, okay. Uh, I, I started teaching experimental classes, right. uh, called laboratory classes, of course. Where, I, where I tried out these things, and especially after 1974, when I read a book by Kenneth Maui called Water in the Lake, hmm. and he had models of how you could organize classrooms almost like musical events, okay. where you were like more the conductor sure and the class had to have a quality of music that is ensemble mm. uh, harmony kind of rhythm right? yeah. harmony that's right okay rather than learning see it was like how do you organize a rich experience that people carry away a lot from it sure yeah. right so that influenced me a lot okay and then i wrote that dissertation i published a couple of articles about that and then in 1983 and that was kind of at the peak mm. of my interest in that because i was getting my I got my psychology degree in 1984. Mm. So at that time, Temple essentially collapsed, mm. and I got fired along with a whole bunch of people. And getting fired as a tenured full professor sure. is a painful thing. Sure. And I was angry again. But actually, mm. I got very lucky. I had a girlfriend at the time who knew a guy who needed to hire somebody okay. to do some organizational work. Okay. So it, it was he had a grant to create a conference. Mm. So... He hired me as a kind of part-time adjunct thing okay. to run this conference. I found I loved running conferences. Sure. Okay? Because it gave me a scope for both the intellectual side of my life of and course. all this kind of practical organizational stuff. thought about how you, get, how you organize a conference almost like a musical event. Sure. The kinds of people you get together, the kind of freedom you give them, the kind of communications among them and the like. And so that conference was, it was the first National Technological Literacy Conference. Okay. And I won national first prize for programming a new conference. Oh, interesting. So I got, you know, I got to, then I did a lot more of that stuff. Sure. But eventually I kind of caught on at Penn State. Right. And the philosophy, I got in the philosophy department. I did a little bit of work for the ed school. And mostly I was in this interdisciplinary unit. Hmm. And I was there until 92. Okay. Okay. So coming, I got, I came back to Temple because I finally won my nine-year battle with them. Sure. And I came back, there was no philosophy of education, no the foundations group, no nothing. So for a while, I became the associate director of the humanities core curriculum for the mm. university. And then I became the chairman of the ed leadership department. 
I guess the thing that, uh, that, that leaps forward in hearing you recount the, uh, uh, the story here is uh, the degree to which the, the trajectory is not linear, right? I mean, there are these uh, moments of sort of a, a, a motion in one direction, and yeah. then uh, you find yourself sort of moving in a new direction uh, uh, as ideas sort of uh, are generated by the, by the engagement. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that, w- that uh, uh, many folks who are considering an academic career yeah. don't think enough about. I totally agree. And in yeah. fact, I think people would have a much less downbeat view sure. if, they, if they had experiences like mine. Sure, yeah. Like every time I got punched in the face, things got better. Sure, yeah. You Interesting. Know? It's like I, I was that much smarter. Sure. And disrupted from something that was getting really terrible. Right, right, right. I like found myself in something that was right up to date, right? Sure. And right on time. Yeah. So, so like, you know, lost my fear of this. Nobody could do nothing to me. Sure, yeah. Well, At one that's point, I got fired yeah. from Penn State. It was great. Sure, yeah. Pretty soon they hired me back because they realized sure. that they had made the mistake, right? Because, but, but I think what, you, what you're talking about there is a certain type of fearlessness in one's career yeah. uh, that comes from sort of, as you said, getting, uh, getting, getting punched over a little bit yeah. uh, and recognizing that it's not, it's not the end of things, right? It's a new beginning. So, so where did that leave you? So I, when I started writing Philosophy of Education again, after a kind of a period where I'd done less of it, I never did mm. none of it, but I did less of it, uh, I picked up the issues of the global economy, mm. um, the coming collapse of our sure. institutional life, sure. including our universities. Mm. Started writing a lot about that. Um, uh, and uh, the new technology, uh, the internet, and also about listening, because I got involved in that listening right. study group. That's so right. I had these kind of two strains of work, starting probably in the mid-'90s, okay. with, with the globalization and technology thing, and the listening thing started in 2003. Okay. Okay? And so I was able to kind of work two kinds of things. I developed a lot of articles in both of these areas. Hmm. So I was kind of fielding the new thing. I see. Fielding the new thing. And so that's, that's where the Education 2.0 book came out. I, came, was, I wanted to think, what are the implications of all of these new developments? Sure. Global firms, global networks, uh, information that people have on their, on their uh, bodies, sure. uh, MOOCs, Sure, and yeah. all of that, and that—that's what led to, to, to that book, and it, it took retirement actually for me to have the time to really, th- to, yeah. to really think it all out, interesting, and, and discover it. And then the other thing that I started doing in retirement started in two thousand and six or two thousand and seven mm. were these leaders books, yeah. and I felt you know like I had read a book called Contemporary American Philosophy. It was written in nineteen thirty-three or so. It was, it was articles just like this, sure. by kind of all the leading philosophers. Okay, giving a sense of their uh, uh, experiences, their life uh, in the field, uh, in the discipline, and uh, how they had come, uh, how to, they had their, come to themselves, their research yeah. agenda, how they had come to have the opportunity to say what they had right. wanted to say, and like I found it very, very inspiring. And right. I thought, you know. Philosophy I, of education ought to have, ought uh, to have something, something like that. Yeah. So I put this idea together, and I. Uh, talked to Peter DeLift at Sense. He said okay. it was a great idea. Why don't we expand it? Okay. Okay. So oh, right. That's right. Yeah. Right. So we're now in volume nine. My goodness. We have philosophy of education and then a second series, mm. history of ed, curriculum studies, right. critical pedagogy, sociology is in the works. Right. And so it's been a, it's been a labor of love. It's been a labor. You know, a, lo- sure. a lot of these folks are kind of older. Mm. Uh, 
But it's also been a very lucky series. And we got Israel Scheffler to write yeah, the foreword. Yeah, the foreword. We got yeah. Bernard Balin to write the preface to the uh, history of Ed. Yeah. You know, and uh, people who have 50 years to look over a field oh, that wow. they had a hand in developing, plus all these people who contributed to it. Wow. Yeah, but that given that again, given that scope, uh, uh, I'm sure that one is able to sort of um, uh, better see the terrain of the field, right? And sort of, uh, in many ways, uh, perhaps even predict uh, what might be uh, uh, around the corner. For I the think work. so. I've written yeah. a little bit about this. I wrote a paper called "Social Foundations of Education mm. in the Information Age." Okay. And yeah, it's uh, obviously social foundations is kind of on this. St- threat. Yeah. Philosophy of education is under threat. Uh, things are disappearing. And I kind of knew that they would at least 20 years ago. Mm. And so I've been watching and also writing somewhat about this. Right. And uh, so I, ha- I have actually created a kind of vision for the field okay. that involves a more collaborative kind of professional, okay. somebody who can go into situations. And something like... Um, what Ken Benny did when he was mm. would kind of find communicative models, mm. so that I mean, Ken Benny was a philosopher. He was uh, uh, active in the civil rights movement. Sure, he he got the opportunity to develop communicative models for uh, people involved in change. Mm. I thought, well, I'm a social psychologist. I'm a philosopher, just like he is. Sure, and, right. So so. So that's one model, and uh, there also I also have ideas about the kinds of thinking that mm. foundations people can do, and I think that actually I've gone in, in a way the full circle back to social foundations of education as was first understood okay. by the Columbia by the Kilpatrick group that sure. many of whose members gravitated to Illinois in 1941 to 49. Huh. So it's, I, I really think that philosophy of education probably belongs back in philosophy departments. Sure. I think tr- struggling to create a few jobs and 95% of the students not being able to get jobs, I think this is a, is a foolish venture. I think people mm. need to be very open so sure. where they can contribute and how. And I think new institutions are emerging, new forms of uh, creative education yeah. are emerging, and new kinds of professionals are going to be needed. Mm. And I can't think of anybody who can play some of these roles, some of these bridging roles, and uh, conceiving of big pictures, looking mm. at changes and seeing potential pitfalls and consequences, than people trained you know, in... In social foundations of education, mm-hmm. including philosophy of education, of course, but actually being able to have a large theoretical and descriptive vocabularies mm. that are sensitive to the kinds of concerns people are expressing. Yeah. Well, Len, given the, the, the length of your uh, uh, perception and the depth of your, uh, your knowledge, uh, I think that's a, that's a quite good uh, sort of offering to give to those who are coming into the field afresh. Well, Len, thanks again for sitting and chatting with us. It's, it's really been a pleasure. Oh, it's been my great pleasure, Winston. For more information and to review previous episodes, please visit www.pipeline.fm. A very special thanks to Moby for use of his song, Summer, as our theme.